Welcome. This is episode three of your MedMal podcast, Discovering the Needle. Nurse consultants help you discover what you didn't know that you didn't know about how to win your medical malpractice case. In this podcast, we look at anonymized true examples of how a behind-the-scenes, non-testifying nurse consultant was able to quickly locate, isolate, and articulate the core issues in common and not-so-common medical malpractice scenarios, using his or her nursing expertise to save the firm upfront costs, resulting in higher profits and higher compensation to your deserving client. If you're new to our podcast, welcome. You can learn more about how behind-the-scenes legal nurse consulting can improve your firm's win rates and profitability by following us on LinkedIn or visiting our website at www.nplegalconsultants.com. By following our weekly podcast, you can use your commute to sharpen your own standard of care issue spotting and causation narrative skills. Grow your virtual Rolodex of top nurse consultants of all specialties and discover the MedMal plaintiff attorney's secret weapon for slaying the medical corporate giant. It's time to discover the nurse consultant advantage. Let's get started. Today, we have our guest, Mary Jo Hunt. Welcome to the show, Mary Jo. Thank you. Mary Jo has been a registered nurse since 1982 and has worked in med surge, labor and delivery, outpatient obstetrics and fertility. She's also worked in the neonatal intensive care unit. She's worked as a newborn admit nurse and in mother baby and in both inpatient and outpatient pediatrics. She's also worked as a private duty nurse for pediatric patients, as well as a nurse for hospice care. Thank you. It's good to be with you. Today, we have a particularly interesting case. Mary Jo was a whistleblower on this case. I understand that you actually were caring for this particular patient when you caught this issue. That's right. I was working in a neonatal step down, which is just below NICU nursery, taking care of this particular patient. This was your first encounter with anything really legal as it relates to nursing, sort of piqued your interest in legal nurse consulting? It absolutely was. The patient ultimately developed cerebral palsy. Is that right? Yes. Let's talk a little bit about cerebral palsy. That seems to be a really common theme among birth injury cases. Tell us a little bit about what cerebral palsy is and how it develops. Cerebral palsy is a result of very low oxygen to the brain. More often it's during the birth process that it happens. It could happen prenatally if a fetus had a cord around their neck and was having problems with oxygenation. It could happen if a placenta was insufficient. So it's not a genetic condition like some of these other birth defects, Down syndrome and things like that. No, it is a symptom from a cause. And most often you can find the cause, but not always. Cerebral palsy is not already part of the fetus's makeup before they are born. So it's congenital in that it is present from birth, but it is not genetic or existing in the DNA. Right. In this particular case, the infant was documented hypoxic or anoxic at least eight minutes before birth. Tell us a bit about the background of what it was that you caught on to. 
So I was working in the step-down nursery with a baby who had been transferred in from another hospital after having had traumatic birth injury. And I tried to figure out what had happened that brought her there. And I spent the whole evening reading her chart. And what did you find? I had previously become qualified to work at labor and delivery and neonatal care. So I had learned about fetal heart rate monitoring and what early and late decelerations meant and what heart rates were normal and how much fetal heart rate variability there should be. What I found was that her record had many hours of her pre-birth fetal heart rate monitoring. And I saw that it was clearly showing significant signs of distress. And what do those look like on a fetal monitor? First of all, the heart rate is supposed to be 135 to 185. This particular monitoring was a direct fetal heart monitoring in that the mom's waters had been broken and a little teeny lead had been screwed into the baby's scalp to give a very good record of what was going on for that little baby. Along with that, they have a monitor that is inserted into the uterus that measures very specifically the level of the contractions. And those are put side by side so that you can see how the baby is responding to the contractions. So you can learn a whole bunch of things about a baby that might be in trouble from this kind of monitoring. And so there was hours and hours of this fetal heart monitoring. Was there any indication in the record that the medical staff or the physician was aware that there were problems on these tracings? The doctor didn't chart frequently throughout that time. The doctor was with the patient in what's called an LDRP, a labor delivery recovery postpartum room, the whole time during that monitoring. Each patient is assigned a nurse for the labor delivery part. And at the time that a baby is born, then an a delivery admit nurse comes in to be the baby's nurse. This patient was at a different hospital. So you were reading the records from hospital A while you were working at hospital B, the night shift, just trying to understand what happened to the baby. Because the baby was there with me and was showing some signs. She had poor suck and swallow, very immature coordination of those things, which can be pretty significant if you know what you're looking for. She also had poor blood glucose moderation and her temperature wasn't super stable. The bone just on the other side of the shoulder going down the arm, that's the humerus. And that was broken on her left side. And that collarbone as well was broken. What normally would or should happen when those signs are apparent on the fetal heart tracings? Typically, the first time you see what's called late decelerations, which means that when the, when the contractions are happening, the heart rate is going down afterwards, and then it has a real hard time coming back up to normal before the next contraction, which means that the baby isn't getting 
good oxygenation in between contractions, which would allow her to recover enough for the next contractions. And if you're seeing that early on or before the phase of pushing, is not something that would prompt them to consider a C-section? Absolutely. And in fact, there were records that say that there was meconium when the waters were broken. And meconium is the stool that a pre-born baby might excrete when they are in distress. Anytime that you have broken waters and meconium, you have less time that you can take before you should have that baby delivered. And that's a threat to the infant's lungs in that state to have meconium in that fluid. Very much. Meconium oftentimes occurs in babies that are post-term, 40 plus weeks. This wasn't that case. Right. This baby was a 38 and a half week baby. And so the only real explanation for why there would be meconium in the amniotic fluid is the significant amount of stress. Definitely stress, but meconium is a symptom of something, but you don't know what the something is. So we have these late decelerations, which were clear enough to you that you feel they should have been clear to the provider. And then we also have this meconium stained fluid. By the time the baby was placed on this very special type of probe, the waters had already been broken. They'd already seen meconium in the amniotic fluid. And the provider allowed this baby to stay in utero without talking about a C-section for hours. The provider was present during that whole time after the waters were broken, the meconium was seen, the late decelerations were showing clearly, and the provider stayed right with the mother during that whole time. The provider did not chart during that time. And it was being charted that they were sitting at the bedside. The provider sat at the bedside the whole time and she was knitting there and was probably looking up at the monitor on occasion and waiting for the baby to be born. The labor and delivery nurse seemed to be very concerned. In her charting, she mentioned that she was pointing out the late decelerations and that she was asking the physician if she needed to have a C-section room ready. And the physician said, no, we're fine. The nurse seemed to be more and more concerned as time went on, which makes sense, to the point that eventually she went and called the chief of the obstetrics gynecology in that hospital because the mom's physician did not have C-section privileges in the hospital. And the nurse oh. was concerned. That was why there was not a C-section forthcoming. Ah, I wondered if there was something outside of the box here that might be playing into it. Sometimes not everything can be found in the medical record. That was pretty gutty of that nurse to go out around the physician and call the OBGYN head of the department to have him just happen to walk through the halls at the right time, which he did. But in the meantime, the baby was crowning and things were getting pretty bad before he got there. 
I could agree that it took some courage for the nurse to make that phone call to the chief of obstetrics. But at the same time, it, it sort of is our responsibility as nurses to advocate for that patient when speaking with the physician that's responsible for the patient just isn't getting those results. I think that her making that decision to to go above this physician's head was not only laudable, but actually her responsibility. She saved that baby's life. Absolutely. While that chief OBGYN was on his way there, the baby was crowning and actually they lost the heart rate for a time. And by then the doctor who was supposed to be delivering the baby was very stressed out as well because the baby was stuck. We call it dystocia and the baby is not moving and the doctor is trying desperately to get that baby out of there. And you've got a mom who's trying to push and everyone's stressed out and emotional around her. Horrifying scene. At that moment, the chief of OB GYN came in and took control of the whole situation. He reached in and got a hold of the baby at the shoulder, uh, the upper arm, and was able to turn her and pull her out, breaking her humerus and her collarbone as he delivered her. She had no heart rate, no good color, no good tone, no attempt at crying. Sounds like a dead baby. She was at that point. Immediately resuscitation was begun. They called for respiratory to get there immediately. And the respiratory therapist came in the room. So now you've got a lot of people in the room and a lot of chaos going on. And this young couple hasn't been told much of anything. They didn't even know that that they were in trouble before. They didn't know anything about late decels or meconium or anything. They see resuscitation efforts going on. They hear people working towards saving this baby. The respiratory therapist intubates the baby and then they continue the bagging. The intubation is just to make sure that the airway is open completely between the lungs and the mouth. There's an eight-minute period of time in the record that the baby has uh, documented no heart rate before it's born. And then there was the CPR going on, so you don't know what the heart rate is during that time and the bagging for a few minutes. So baby is not pinking up even though she's been intubated and they're bagging her for 15 minutes. She's not pinking up. There's a time written for the intubation and there's a time written when the respiratory therapist ordered to have radiology take a picture that the intubation was correctly done. And that is approximately 15 minutes after the baby was intubated. Wow. And this is why chronologies can become so powerful in medical malpractice cases, because it's one thing to see on this part of the record, you have this sort of micro event happening. And then on this other part of the record, you have this other micro event happening. And then when that gets laid out onto a chronology, you can actually see 
sometimes how close they are or how far right. apart they are. And either one of those can tell a really dramatic story when you have two events that are that far apart. And during that time, the oxygenation of this infant's brain is questionable. 15 minutes is an eternity. And that is a big concern. So the radiologist takes the picture and says, ah, you happen to be bagging her into her stomach. The intubation tube was not correctly placed. So they took it out, they replaced it, and then they bagged her. And somehow she recovered. She was sent to our hospital. It sounds like there were some people in there who might have been named as defendants, but you understanding what you were reading as a nurse helped you to see how the nurse who was caring for the mother who was in labor and the chief of obstetrics were both relatively innocent in this, in that they were doing everything that they could. And in fact, both of them not only were not responsible, but both of them in their own way helped to make this outcome so that we had a baby that survived, even though the baby was still dramatically and devastatingly disabled. But nevertheless, they both in their own way saved that baby's life. Both of them, I would say, were heroic in this instance. Another thing that I noticed in the records was that this was a first-time pregnant mom. She had a history of type 1 diabetes from childhood that was poorly managed. In fact, her chart said she was a brittle diabetic, which means poorly controlled insulin-dependent diabetic. Very extreme highs and lows. Her admit labs showed that she had a high hemoglobin A1C, which is just tells how has your blood sugar been managed over the last three months. And she had a 9.6, is poorly controlled. Very much so. So this baby was over nine pounds, which is a big baby for a first time mom, but also with a diabetic mom, baby matures slowly. They get big fast, but their lungs mature slowly. Also, their ability to hold their blood sugar is about nil, usually when they're born. See, I love that you have so many of these details about the nuances of understanding that not every child is the same. Like given that this mother had type 1 diabetes, these are some of the considerations that have to be made for this infant and this case. It's the kind of thing that you have to be a nurse to understand. You would think that her obstetrician would know that bringing her into that LDRP, which is usually a low-risk delivery that you have patients set up for, that she would know that, number one, we're going to have probably a very big baby. Number two, it's a week and a half early, but may show up as being as much as four weeks early in terms of its development. And number three, you have a mom who's on her first baby. So she hasn't ever had a baby go through her pelvis. And so who's to know how big of a baby she can have that won't get stuck? Right. All of these things pointing to the fact that a C-section should have been something considered early on for this mom. Yes. At least ready for it. 
that would have prevented everything. This child, as far as we know, may have been completely normal had they just taken her out through a C-section. Right. But what I learned from that, a couple of things. One, just because a doctor breaks a baby's arm doesn't mean that they are bad. There was a lot to tease out of the records. Some things were important to know. Some things were important to see. For example, that labor and delivery nurse, she did all in her power. She was a hero. And so she certainly shouldn't be sued. And you'd have to know a little bit about what was good and bad and wrong and what went super awry to be able to know all that. And that makes all the difference in the world when you're the medical malpractice plaintiff attorney, because no medical malpractice plaintiff attorney wants to be suing the wrong person. Doctors and nurses that are doing everything they can are true heroes. Medical malpractice attorneys that take cases for the plaintiff are definitely in it for justice and helping that plaintiff get what is needed to cover their losses and their damages while also making sure that they don't needlessly sue true heroes that are just doing the best they can to provide care. The people that were ultimately sued were the primary caregiver of the mom and the hospital where the intubation issue occurred. Thank you so much for your time on the show. Mary Jo can be reached at www.nplegalconsultants.com. Thank you, Mary Jo. You're welcome. Thank you. You've been listening to Discovering the Needle. Nurse consultants help you discover what you didn't know that you didn't know about how to win your medical malpractice case. This podcast is a production of Discovery NP Legal Consultants. Discovery is the largest unified growing force of specialty nurse practitioners offering consulting services to medical malpractice attorneys who take cases for the plaintiff. Nationwide nurse practitioner consultants to the legal profession, or NPCLPs, a Discovery NP Legal Consultants include specialists in labor and delivery, mother baby, and other specialties. To request a consultation or to be featured as a legal nurse consultant on our podcast, you may reach us on our website at www.nplegalconsultants.com or by calling 208-779-1990. That's 208-779-1990.